Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. But not with our usual spiel after lunch or as you're finishing it, but just to give you some details on our sessions next week. At 12 o'clock, here as usual, we have Brian Keating, who's going to be talking about the best places in the world, the best wildernesses that are left in the world that you can go visit. I mean, if you've got snowshoes and kayaks and an expedition ship and everything like that lined up. And in the evening, over at the U of L, there are actually two sessions. The theme of his talk is um, polar possibilities, and he's going to be talking about what it's like to live at the ends of the Earth, namely the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, and that's split actually into two separate sessions. He's going to start off at 6.30 talking about the Arctic, uh, the Antarctic. Thank you from the back of the room. <laughs> the Antarctic. And if you've been to one of Brian's presentations, it's a video film which he interrupts and gives a live commentary on what's going on and takes questions. It's a wonderful interactive affair. So he starts at 6.30 with Antarctica, and then at 7.50, that's 10 to 8, there's another show which is about the Arctic. So as with SAGPA over here, at noon, you better come early if you're going to catch that presentation. And the same thing for the UFL. We expect big crowds at both sessions. So now back to our topic for today, curbing civil liberties. What can Canadians expect after the recent attacks on soldiers and Parliament? Dr. Paul Vimenevitz is going to be invited back to the microphone to take questions, and I hope you've thought of some. It's a really serious topic. Is it going to be affecting us? It's not just us, because I hope he'll talk a little bit about the five eyes, and it's not just Canada that is rushing through legislation. There are other countries that have had it in for several years now, and the surveillance is sort of reminiscent of 1984. Um, I have to say that SAGPA wishes to acknowledge the U of L for its support, and also as a non-profit organization, SAGPA relies on the donations from you all. Annalise is here. She's putting a hand up. And she's be very happy to accept your annual subscriptions for just twenty-five dollars. Uh, our thanks are also due to Country Kitchen Catering for the lunches they serve, to Shaw TV, and to CKXU Radio for broadcasting these sessions. So, I think that with that, yeah, uh, with that, we now go to our question and answer period. I see. You found the microphone. Excellent. Please state your name before you ask your question. Keep your preamble short. And uh, one or maximum two questions, please. Dr. Vermeulitz. 
by the way, I just wanted to mention, uh, and I hope, I hope I'm right about this, not only does SACPA support the university, um, uh, sorry, not only does the university support SACPA, but uh, my understanding is that uh, next term, SACPA is joining with Elperg to uh, sponsor uh, a student speaking contest. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so it's, the university appreciates that, and I'll certainly be telling some of my students to uh, get at the mic. Um, any, but I, I am hoping uh, um, that this isn't just a question period. I'd like to hear what some of you think about some of these issues that we've been talking about. But anyhow, pl question, please. My name's Cheryl Bradley, and I uh, appreciate your informed and provoking presentation. Mostly provoking, not so much informed, yeah. <laughs> I'm an average Canadian who tries to keep up on the news, keep informed, and and I don't think you're average at all. Understand yeah. the, um, the what the truth is, um, and I rely a lot on uh, CBC, Globe and Mail, our Canadian media, to give me um, rational and verifiable perspectives on issues like you were talking about today, yeah. like what's going on in the Middle East. Um, so you cite Al Jazeera as one ideology or getting uh, a story of what's there, and then you cite Fox News as giving another perspective. I'd like your assessment, if you, if you feel competent to do that, on our, our national media, the, the, the information sources we have from our own Canadian journalists and writers. And are we Canadians, if we take the time to read that, getting getting a fairly um, good understanding of the world situation. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, you know, one of, one of the I – mean, I specialize in philosophy of war is my, is my thing, right? But, um, and, of course, one aspect of philosophy of war and one weapon in war is propaganda. Um, you have to uh, use propaganda in order to motivate your own, you know, your own troops, so to speak, and we are the troops. Um, uh, in terms of uh, uh, well, what's happened in the media over the last – I'm old enough, not as old as some of you, but I'm old enough to remember um, – <laughs> when, the, when the CBC was a pretty reputable and reliable uh, source of information. But what's happened um, – two things, I think, have happened. One is the politicization of the media. Uh, so you have in the United States, for example, on the extreme right, you've got Fox News. On the extreme left, you've got MSNBC. Um, and – I mean, they're, both of them are equally stupid in their, own, in their own ways. And then somewhere in the middle, you've probably got CNN, which I, which I think, you know, I mean, depending on which side of the political spectrum you're on, you might consider it too far left, too far right. But it's not bad uh, by comparison. But, um, <laughs> but the other thing that's happened is um, that uh, media is a business, and so there's been this kind of deterioration of uh, the standards of, of good journalism in order to kowtow to uh, – well, there's that metaphor again – in order to kowtow to um, um, the consumer, right? And that's you and me, and we want infotainment. Uh, and so you do get uh, – so what's happened in the last certainly tw 20 years is that the CBC, which used to be very, very reputable, uh, has kind of given in a little bit, you know, to that side – um, uh, and the same thing, by the way, has happened uh, to uh, the BBC, which used to be like the standard, right, for uh, uh, objective journalism. Um, 
so you get some stories and you kind of look at it. Uh, uh, it's a human interest story, really, more than or perhaps true crime stories, and they start you know g- getting close to the the, the front page. Um, on, in, so, I mean, I think that there are those two forces that have come to play. And so now, really all you can do to be informed is you have to watch, I hate to say it, right? you got tune into Fox, tune into MSNBC, tune into BBC, but also tune into Al Jazeera, which in the, uh, in the Arab world, Al Jazeera is kind of like the CNN in the sense that there are, uh, certainly in Pakistan, for example, extreme uh, – you can't talk about left and right when you're talking about the Muslim world. You can talk about, um, you know, the more Islamist stations versus the more secularist stations. Um, but uh, Al Jazeera is pretty good uh, in terms of hitting that, that, middle, that middle ground. They still have, of course, infotainment like CNN does because they're – you know, and it's a business. They're trying to sell advertising and so on, right? Um, so um, – you know, as kind of a, a, an old curmudgeon, I get kind of my backup when the CBC does a human interest story instead of covering something with, that's obviously much more important. But I, you know, I mean, I do understand that it's a business. You know, you're putting, you're putting CBC and the Globe and Mail in the middle, from what you've just said. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, thank I would, you. I would do that. Next question, please. Not the National Post, which I would put on the, <laughs> or Global. You know. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, And I know you tried hard to piss us off, but I'm not sure you succeeded. Oh, damn. Uh, Anyway, my name is Frances Schultz. And my concern is when you talked about the use of language and what you can do with it. We have a prime minister who's running around the world telling all the other countries what they should be doing. And my feeling is that part of trying to join the big boys is to say you've had a terrorist attack on your own land when it was a question, bad as it was, of one soldier being killed at the monument. But he has characterized that as a terrorist attack. Is that what he's trying to do? Well, of course. Um, I mean, but but of course my issue is not so much with – is not so much with the – uh, trying to hype the attack as a terrorist attack as distinct from, you know, simply some guy who was just, you know, having a bad day. Um, it has to do with the deterioration of language. I think that the that once you use the word terrorist to uh, simply mean them, right, as distinct from, right, uh, then I think you've it's kind of wiped out its usefulness in our discussions. We can't now we're now we're being de- now we're being deprived of a language by which we can actually adjudicate these these questions. Um, for example, I mean, you certainly uh, don't want to define terrorism as wrongful. Then fill in the blank, because that makes it impossible for anyone to defend a terrorist attack, right? Which, uh, let's face it, in human history, there is probably no jurisdiction in the world that could have uh, achieved legitimacy had it not at some point or another uh, um, you know, been a terrorist organization. The State of Israel was established because of the terrorist attack on the uh, King David Hotel. Right? That was a terrorist attack because there were civilians in that hotel, but the Irgun targeted it in order to drive the British out, and lo and behold, it succeeded. And, right? The United States of America was founded as a terrorist 
uh, as a result of terrorism. Um, Canada was founded as a terrorism. I mean, I have some First Nations friends who, who lent me, uh, uh, not lent me, who gave me this sweatshirt. And on the front of the sweatshirt is a picture. Maybe some of you have this thing that's about five or six First Nations, uh, you know, turn of the century First Nations guys carrying guns or something like that, saying, fighting terrorism since 1867, you know, or something like this, you know. Uh, 1492, sorry, you're right. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I'm not here in Western Canada. But. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Henning Mundel. Um, Paul, I, I sort of want to take exception with the statement you made, but obviously you're a firm believer of it. I sort of have an understanding that, um, metaphorically speaking, um, and uh, uh, albeit um, arguments can be put against it, but the American and Western involvements in the Iraq war, in the Afghanistan war, can be sort of considered as midwives in the birthing of ISIS. And my concern is, also looking back at Vietnam and elsewhere in the world, how can American, more American boots on the ground help to diffuse any situations, will they not just, in the whole Muslim world, not even just the Middle East, create a greater and greater anti-American and anti-Western feelings? Oh, a absolutely. Of course, the, of course it will. Um, but, you know, I mean, one of the, one of the questions you've got to ask is, can the West in general, and can the United States in particular, allow... Um, the success of ISIS to actually take over uh, at least Iraq and um, uh, and Syria, but perhaps you know, I mean, they have designs on on, on southern Turkey. They've got designs on uh, Jordan. Can the Americans afford to to allow that? Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's it certainly is going to cost them a great deal of anti-Americanism uh, in in the Middle East, but. They have to make that kind of strategic choice. Uh, and I'm not in a position to opine as to uh, whether or not in the long run it would be a good idea or not. Um, they are worried about uh, – they are worried just in the same way that during the Cold War they're worried about, uh, you know, the domino effect of the communist regimes one after the other and lo and behold the next thing they'll be on the shores of California. Um, they have to – you know, they have a legitimate worry about uh, the rise of uh, jihadist uh, uh, governments, which are probably not going to be all that friendly to American interests. So, But the question goes beyond the Middle East. It goes to South Asia. It goes to inflaming the whole Muslim world. The whole Muslim – that's right. I mean, remember, the Muslim world runs all the way – I mean, even in terms – all the way from – the Atlantic with uh, Morocco and all the way to uh, I uh, Indonesia and beyond, and the Philippines, in, f uh, in fact. So, yeah, uh, and the thing about um, the Muslim world is that in the same way that for many Jews uh, consider themselves Jews first and then whether, you know, Canadians, Americans, or whatever, second, Muslims at least theologically are required to consider themselves part of the nation of Islam first and then then, secondly, uh, uh, something else. So that uh, although, of course, Islam has the same history of racism that Christianity or Judaism has, um, the thing is that theologically, at least, they are committed 
to each other, and that means that you're going to get, as you, uh, you, know, as you rightly point out, that uh, the, you're going to get um, anti-American um, uh, responses uh, in the Philippines and, and uh, you know, right across the Muslim world. Okay, Next question, please. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Um, I feel unable to speak for everyone in this room, but uh, I'll make it a personal comment that in terms of pissing us off, you failed successfully. (laughs) Um, Having been born, one of the few people in this room probably who was born before the Great Depression, um, I have felt through my life that... that You are talking about 2008, right? <laughs> yeah, Sorry. the Great Depression. The Great Depression. <laughs> and and uh, I, I have felt, as I get older, that the demonization of people within our society is accelerating. Would you be prepared to make a comment on, on your feelings about that matter and, what, and the implications it has? I think there are movements in both directions. Right? I mean, I think that there are... Um, uh, I think that that uh, we are becoming, in some respects, more and more tolerant and accepting and inviting to people who are different from ourselves. But I think at the same time, there's going to be a, a kind of a counter reaction to that. I mean, look, I myself um, uh, am as much of a bigot as anyone. I, I believe that we should have a. Uh, I, I believe in restricted immigration, um, not based upon skin color, but culinary tradition, and. <laughs> I advocate genocide, um, and yes, it's the Scots, and yes, it's and yes, it's because of the haggis. Um, I mean, rolled oats and sheep gut. Like, doesn't that sound great? You know, I want. Look, I love curry. I want to open this country up to. You know, I, I think every East Indian should be automatically admitted to Canada. Right? Um, we we've got enough Japanese restaurants, Tad. So for you know, uh, enough of that. But no, I mean, in, ser- in all seriousness, I think it, it runs in both directions. And uh, there's always going to be that pullback, you know. Uh, and this is especially, I live in Europe pretty much a third of the year, every year. And in Europe, uh, you really feel this tension a great, uh, even more. You know, I mean, Europe is struggling right now with the integration of, uh, in many cases, the uh, former colonial uh, um, possessions. But not just that. Um, some of you may know, uh, I was just, uh, this summer in Italy, 150,000 boat people landed in Lampedusa or along the, uh, that coast. 150,000. Um, and the thing is that most of them don't want to stay in Italy, but you know, after about a year, they'll, once they get their papers or whatever, they'll drift north into Germany and England and so on and so forth. But that's where the problem arises. The uh, people feel that their culture is threatened. And their culture is threatened, just as people from Vancouver say, you know, our culture is being threatened now because all the signs on the street are in Chinese or in in Delta, all the signs are, you know, everybody's, you know, East Indian, like, you know, damn it, I can't be a Canadian in my own country. So you're going to get that no matter, uh, even, even if people want to be tolerant and and, uh, accepting. So I think that the tension pulls in both directions, you know. Okay, next question, please. My name's Austin Fennell. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you here, Paul. 
Uh, I noticed that you're getting older, too. Yeah, thanks, Austin. Yeah. <laughs> I grew this this summer, you know. Uh. Not effectively. Yeah. <laughs> I was going for the Sean Connery look, okay? Yeah, first question, in 1939, we declared we were at war. Uh, so my first question is, Canada at war? And the second question is, how will the civil liberties discussion be used in the next election? Ah. <laughs> uh, I can answer the first question. Uh, the um, Part of what's called uh, just war theory, there are two parts to just war theory. That is, uh, justice in going to war in the first place, that's called use ad bellum. And then use in bellum means uh, under what, what constraints are there when you're, you know, in the actual uh, prosecution of the war. In the, in the first part, though, one of the conditions that has been set down over the course of – since the time of Augustus, in fact, uh, uh, not Augustus, sorry, uh, uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine uh, is um, uh, what's called the promulgation condition. So you have to declare war. But that tradition, um, uh, that requirement has been honored more in the, uh, in the breach than the observance since the Second World War. Vietnam was not declared. Uh, you know, there was no. Interestingly enough, in 1998, spokespersons for Al Qaeda did declare war against the United States. They actually, you know, declared right. Um, so the thing is that you can't really talk about. Uh, it's very difficult to be able to determine in any legalistic sense whether we are or are not at war. However, one can say that uh, it makes perfect sense to say to acknowledge that. We are at war with, let's say, the Taliban, or we are at war with ISIS. What you can't say coherently is a war on terror. That doesn't make any. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? Um, because you can't. I mean, t terror is a means by which um, one or both sides, in a, actually, usually both sides in a conflict, are going to pursue pursue their military objectives. You can't uh, declare war on a means right? without, by the way, using those same means. Right? <laughs> so, um, so there are incoherent uh, notions in this idea about you know, uh, uh, the war on terror. So what would you call actually dropping bombs from 20,000 feet? Uh, Canada uh, dropping bombs on a whole bunch of people in Iraq and Syria. Uh, no, look, I'm not denying that we are at war. Right? Or one shouldn't say we. There are some people who are at war. Um, but uh, And furthermore, the um, designation that we are at war, whether that war is declared or not, uh, does alter the, um, the jurisprudence uh, within a country that declares itself at war in terms of what it can do both uh, to its own citizens and to other citizens. So, um, you know, you often hear the rhetoric, especially in the United States, but it's creeping its way into Canada now, which is that, listen, uh, we're at war, and so some of the features of the War Measures Act, which you might remember from 1970, some of those features uh, can re-enter our jurisprudence here in Canada. And that, of course, is uh, precisely the danger that I think some of you are, are concerned about, right, is precisely as soon as you designate, whether, whether uh, in, in terms of the United Nations requirements or not, uh, that you are in, at war, then uh, some of our moral intuitions about civil liberties begin to begin to dissolve, right? And so you will find in Canada there are a lot of people who say, yeah, you know. And well, the se second part of the question was how will this play out in the election? Okay, if you want to know how the next election is going to um, 
uh, what, what's going to happen in the next election, which will be next year, right? The next federal election, yeah. Um, ask me and choose the opposite. I am notoriously bad at predicting, <laughs> predicting these things. Uh, and, of course, we all are because we all have our wishful thinking and so on and so forth. Um, I suspect that this will not be uh, one of the prime issues in, in the next election. And the reason for that is because I don't think that either the Liberals or the NDP, for that matter, because the NDP's moved to the middle, I don't think either of those two parties are going to want to identify themselves with soft on terrorism. Right? Okay, fine, thanks. Next question, please. Douglas Mitchell. I've been a Canadian for over 60 years, but my birthplace was elsewhere. And <laughs> Interesting country, elsewhere. <laughs> As you well know, the lion rampant is the Scottish emblem. <laughs> and therefore, when you provoke me, I have to get up. I have to tell you, you mentioned the, the King David Hadel incident. I was in Jerusalem on that date, really? August, August the 3rd, 1946. Yes. And it took me a long time to exercise the demons of what the Zionist terrorists did at that time. What I really would like to ask you, and it's a wee bit off the track, is what do you think uh, Israel, how will they handle this, if they should be provoked and the dangers and risks of them becoming involved in any Middle East maelstrom? Um, now, this is a, a, an important question, and it's a strategic one. The United States has been very careful uh, to keep the Israelis out of uh, these conflicts, precisely because Israeli involvement in, in uh, any conflict against any Arab community uh, – well, it'd be mostly Arab communities rather than Muslim communities. Um, any Arab community is going to provoke precisely the solidarity of Arabs against Israel. And so they are going to do everything in their power um, to keep Israel out of this particular conflict. Um, and this is why, uh, if ISIS manages to get as far south as Damascus and that close to the Golan Heights, um, Israel may find itself in a position where it has where it feels like it has no choice to participate but I think even then I think probably uh, in order to avoid this particular strategic problem I suspect that the Israelis will take over the bombardment of the uh, of the um, um, uh, eastern slopes of the Golan Heights in order to uh, keep the Israelis out of it do you think otherwise what, what you, what's your guess on The nuclear issue. Oh, oh, oh! I, I didn't realize. I'm sorry, I, I missed that. I didn't realize that's what you were talking about. Oh well, um, look. Um, <laughs> if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, um, then that changes everything. Um, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll rescue you and go on to the next question. Hi, Paul. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Hi, Bev. You talked about terror, and, and uh, the previous speaker was from elsewhere. Um, in, that <laughs> same, in that same country, did you know that the bagpipes were used as an instrument of war to terrorize the enemy with that tremendous sound? And they still do. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
Okay, I have two questions, and and I have to say, um, I don't think any of us were pissed off. We, we'd like you to go further. So um, the first one is, in, in regard to civil liberties, um, what can we say about Canada? This is to get back to your topic, right? What can we say about Canada where normal citizens of Canada go out and demonstrate and make clear that they are unhappy with the direction of the government and they are categorized as terrorists. That's question one. Oh, no, can I remember question two? <laughs> well, you answer that one. I'll think of the second one. Oh, oh okay. Well, you've already had two, so and no. there's one behind. Oh, the bagpipes, that was the first one. That was a, that was a comment. That, that was a piece of information. But go ahead with the second <laughs> question, Paul. Uh, again, I think uh, that um, George Orwell had no idea just how right he was and, and, uh, and uh, how much that has reverberated in terms of how many uh, in terms of our consciousness now about the role of language. Um, what you can do is you can always silence somebody by simply calling them a terrorist or by in, some, in the United States you silence people by calling them a socialist right I mean uh, it's very it's you know or in in the, the erstwhile communist world you cited somebody you, know, you silence somebody by calling them a capitalist or you know a, a capitalist sympathizer I think it's a uh, it's it's a very it's a very dangerous thing but there's a way in which you can combat it and that is to simply call somebody on it, right? So in other words, when the government says, you know, this is terrorism, if people just jump up and say, wait a minute, I'm not objecting to your objecting to the content of my protest. I'm objecting to your language and referring to me as a terrorist or as a malcontent or whatever uh, uh, I'm being referred to as. And if you call them on that. And I think it's the same sense or alternatively, what you can do is what postmenopausal women have done and no, listen. No, no. <laughs> uh, You're no, no. I'm, I'm among. Listen, I'm postmenopausal. I'm just, you know. Um, and uh, what some postmenopausal women have done is they've appropriated the word crone. We have two more oh, questioners sorry. behind, so I'll ask you to be short with your answers well, no, was, to the I'm questions. Sorry. I was just going to say that, that uh, or uh, blacks in America will call themselves nigger or, you know, and so on. Why? Because you can take a term and you can appropriate it and say, okay, yeah, I'm a terrorist. You know, I mean, to kind of, you know, make fun of the people who call you that. So, I mean, there are ways that you can combat that kind of corruption of the language. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Zinga, actually, it's not a question. It's a quick comment because I'm going to call you on some language. Go ahead. Uh, and not the P, not that one. <laughs> uh, the P? You, <laughs> yes. Um, oh, oh, sorry. Yeah. But, but, but my, my, I'm, I'm just compelled to say that I was, I was hurt when you mentioned the, uh, the young, the woman who stood over this dying soldier, and you said that that brave was that the right word to use, and perhaps it wasn't. But I'm, I'm struggling with that, and I, and I, I feel that in that moment when you're trying to offer some comfort. I, I would hate for you to, to continue to use that example. That woman was in tears when she was honored in, in the parliament, and I'm not so sure I would know exactly what to say over a young man who was serving his country as a reservist in that way. So I just take exception, and since you made it comfortable for us to call on language, I'm calling you on it. Okay, that's fair enough. Just 60 seconds to comment on that. Um, I think I'll pass on, on that, if you don't mind. Okay. Because, uh, 
And okay. Perhaps, perhaps we could have a chat. Okay, fine. Now, this is our I final question, our final question for today's session. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Paul, could you comment on uh, most times there have been a conflict in the Middle East, the oil prices have gone this way. This time around, it went this way. Maybe not particularly because of ISIS, but do you have any comments on that? Um, uh, yes. Um, I am not an economist, okay, so that, uh, but my understanding is that the reason why the price of oil has come down is because production has gone up considerably, especially in the United States, apparently. But also keep in mind that the, when you flood the, the, the market, even if it's black market oil coming, uh, nevertheless, that, that oil is in the market, and that's going to depress the, co- uh, the price of oil elsewhere on the market. So it's not as if um, oil production in the Middle East has gone down as a result. It's simply now in the hands of somebody else. And they're selling it, by the way, at a much cheaper price um, than, uh, it's being, than Canadian oil, for example, which is you know one of the cheapest oils on the uh, on the planet, so uh, because they're selling it under the table, so that might so it's not as if that's the main reason why the prices have gone down, but uh, probably the main reason. My understanding is that it has to do with increased production in the United States. But what I'm saying is it doesn't bring the prices up. Okay, thanks.